0: It's important for all of us to remember that research as a role is pretty new. And for thousands of years, people built things without someone just doing research full-time as part of that job. And in fact, humans are innately curious. We are regularly trying to learn. If you zoom out and ask who in an organization is trying to learn to do their job, the answer is kind of everyone. The way to be more effective is not to try to do everything or have every conversation, but focus on the areas that are highest risk and then empower other people to take ownership of the things that are easier to hand off or to guide or to, you know. Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm
1: Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. I'm super excited today to be hosting this very special session with someone who's got very interesting presence in the, in the UX research community. First of all, I want to welcome Roxanne. Hi, Roxanne, how's it going?
2: Hey, Roxanne, I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm really good, super excited for today and talking to, to Basit here. I'm sure we're all going to learn a couple of things. So without further ado, Hi, Bezun. How's
2: it going? Hello. I'm
1: good. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited to be talking to you today and talk about your experience and this big topic of today, which is democratizing UX research in your organization. Before we dive into detail of of today's topic, can you please tell us a little bit about you, your track record, your
0: background? Yeah, no, thank you. I always get get confused whether to start at the beginning or the end, but maybe I'll start this way and work backwards. So I am currently run a small research consultancy studio called Yet Another Studio, where I mostly work with organizations to help them figure out how to make better decisions and learn in more intentional, responsible, and sustainable ways. And so that could be working with early stage founders and teaching them how, when you talk to a customer, the best thing to do is not ask them like, hey, would you buy this? And we talk about all the reasons that's, that's bad, operationalizing that when they get to a little bit of a later stage and then working up with larger organizations like Figma and Dropbox to think about what learning looks like at a much larger scale. Prior to starting the studio, I spent about three and some change, three years and some change at Slack, where I was working on a, a range of different things, but towards the end, really running the like research ops practice and thinking about how do we do, how do I empower all the teams that are doing research? to do their jobs really successfully and like enable them to you know be great. And then how do I think about all the people who are also trying to do research in the organization, whether it's sales, customer success, HR, et cetera, and think about how we can take our unique skills and perspectives and empower them mm-hmm. to do their job in better ways. And then I I guess I started my career at Facebook and spent about four years there working mostly on ads and business tools and a little bit of video and then the first version of portal towards the end. And I think the Working on the business side was pretty different than what most people think of as kind of the Facebook experience. We were not trying to move fast and break anything. We were trying to move slowly and help the organization (laughs) serve businesses and and make money. And and so a lot of the work that I did with with them looked a lot more like kind of participatory or collaborative design where I would go and sit with advertisers or small businesses side by side, less bringing them into the lab, more kind of just understanding their work. And I think that was really where a lot of these ideas started from because we would Mm -hmm. take you know, me plus a couple other people and go spend a lot of time with them and realize that everyone could participate in research in some way and, and honestly should participate in research in some way. Outside of that, I do a bit of advising. So an advisor to Maze, an incredible group of people, which is how we got connected. So always love getting to do that and in, in have these conversations in other capacities too.
2: Brilliant.
1: Thanks so much. I guess, you know, there's, all, there's already a ton of things to talk about. I'm really intrigued by your experience at Facebook because I think in the last conversation we had, you said you were you were one of the youngest researchers when you joined the company. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But I wanted to start today's show by talking about the elephant in the room, which basically is this idea that, and we hear a lot about this, right? In, in the in the UX research community, I I myself I'm not a user researcher by you know by training, so I kind of learned along as I, you know, as I went along in my different experiences as a product manager. But the thing I recognized after a while was that basically there were two groups of people, right, or two schools of thought. A bunch of people are usually user researchers who sometimes have PhDs, sometimes don't have PhDs, but basically their story is They went to university and they did a master's degree in psychology and they specialized in ergonomics or, you know, human machine interfaces or whatever. And they decided they wanted to become user researchers and they, and I'm generalizing here, obviously, but a lot of them feel like for somebody to conduct user research, you have to be qualified at -hmm. that level, right? And then there's this other school of thought, which is, listen. There's not enough of us here to be doing this job the proper way anyway. What we should focus on is how do we give the tools and the right frameworks and environment so that people can do research on their own, whether they are researchers or not, product people, sales people, you know, customer success, et cetera. I'd like to get your point of view on this and maybe you can tell us at the same time, tell us a little bit about how you navigated that that line.
0: Totally. Yeah, I think the... the Two schools of thought you summarized pretty well. And I think I spend most of my time sitting at that tension of research is difficult and people can make mistakes. And in fact, some of those mistakes are really damaging. And so the reason that I have a lot of the conversations I have, and and even I think some of the first conversations with any organization is is asking them like, what can go wrong and how do we mitigate those things? Because like research is not free and, and definitely, you know, Especially on the consumer side, when you're talking to people, spending time with their lives, there's lots of sensitive information that you can gather. And if you're not well-equipped to do that, it's, it's really problematic. So I don't want to sort of sugarcoat any of that. But I think on the flip side, it's important for all of us to remember that research as a role is pretty new. And for hundreds, you could argue thousands of years, people built things without someone just doing research full-time as part of that job. and in fact. Humans are innately curious. We are regularly trying to learn. And I think if you zoom out and ask, like, who in an organization is trying to learn to do their job? The answer is kind of everyone. And so if you think not about how you can own every single opportunity to learn and make a decision, but try to focus on the areas that you with your skills and domain expertise and whatnot are like, uniquely valuable, you end up recognizing that you have to sort of give away your legos in, in some way and the way to be more effective is not to try to do everything or have every conversation but focus on the areas that are highest risk and then empower other people to take ownership of the things that are easier to hand off or to guide or to you know
2: and and how, how do you identify user research advocate in the organization you talked about customer success managers or sales yeah. people like do you have any Tricks to identify the good one, or how does it work?
0: That's a great question. I think what's been probably most successful and not necessarily scalable for me, but is is being, you know, being in meetings with people and listening to hear like how are they talking about things and whether they're able to sort of step aside from their own bias and perspective and acknowledge that other people have different lived experiences and they're interested in not just going out and talking to a customer and having a customer Mm -hmm. say like yes, this thing looks cool, but actually what is it that they are experiencing and how do they move through the world and if we're trying to you know offer them a better future generalizable argument about anything we're making right how do we understand where they are so that we can help them get to that future or see that that future is exciting and valuable and Um, i think a lot of folks who work in customer success or in in sales are particularly attuned to this at least the customer success folks i work with are i think account managers at some companies They're trying to help people be successful, right? It's in the name of the job. And so for a lot of them, at least at Slack, we had this incredible team that used to do these kind of pre-slack deployment surveys and then post-slack surveys, or even like pre-training. They'd come on site and think about how do we help, you know, an HR team set up the right tools and channels and apps and things like that. And so they were clearly trying to make a decision. Like, we want this team to be more effective. So what are the tools they currently use? How do they like to communicate? What are some of the rituals that they they have, right? Do they meet weekly, daily, whatnot? And all of this shaped the way that they went in and helped train. And like, if I had a, a number of, like a massive number of people on the team, you could imagine deploying a researcher to that, right? To help with a lot of those things, to design the survey. to think about how to do some of the facilitation. I don't have that privilege. I don't have that many people on the team. And so then the question became, how do we take the things that they understand and they're good at and the things that we understand and we're good at And use it as a way to like increase leverage. And so at Flack, actually, a a number of us spent a bunch of time working with them to build and standardize a lot of their surveys because you had, you know, again, well-intentioned people asking the same question in different ways or using different words or different scales. And then it wasn't comparable across companies. So you'd say like, oh, how did the training go with company A versus company B? And you're like, I mean, this is a four-point scale. This is a five-point scale. And like, I didn't ask these six questions, but this one, you know. And so we were able to say, well, like we have a team of survey experts and we are able to like put this together in Qualtrics and standardize, teach it to you. And like, you know, we're willing to make the investment in maintenance and training and all that because us spending time doing that is going to be so much more impactful than us trying to do every single survey that you're going to go out and do. Right. We're just we're never going to do it. And it's not actually going to help us in the long term because then the only answer moving forward is hiring or just doing this anyway, right? So like, why don't we just start now, acknowledge that like you're going to become more rigorous as you start doing this and recognize actually how difficult research is in some cases, and then turn to us for the things that we're going to be uniquely capable of, right? Things that are totally outside their wheelhouse, totally like much more difficult for them to think through. And so I think it it was really like trying to find people who either like by their job are sort of predisposed or like oriented to being thoughtful and curious in this way, or people who have that kind of background and are really trying to like step outside of themselves.
2: Cool. Thank you. So it's more about mentoring and training people who have the ability to talk to people and do it like in a daily basis. And like, do you then work closely as well to make them share valuable insights or what about like the quality of the insight they can share with the team organization? Like, nah, I think it's big well. as well.
0: Yeah. No, another another fantastic and fun topic. I think they're... You know, if you imagine that research in in a lot of ways is like a service organization, right? Like we're trying to help our companies make better decisions. One of the things that, one of the conclusions I've arrived at, and I think a lot of other people have arrived at is you need to be able to make accessible the information that you are learning so that other people can, you know, especially if you think about whenever somebody joins a company, like what are the things that I would want them to read to catch up to where we are? Because no one's perception of what you do as an organization from the outside and the inside are the same. And so I think there's two parts to what you're asking, which is one, like, how do you actually help them get to good insights, right? And like arrive at reasonable conclusions. And then the other part, which is how do you make sure that those things get shared? Yeah. I think that teaching people synthesis is probably one of the synthesis and recruiting, I think, are like the two hardest parts of the research process. Recruiting, because I, I think it requires you to think through like what it is that we're trying to learn and then who we would want to engage with and how we want to, and, and, there's so many things that go into finding the right people to engage with, right? And, and your inputs determine your outputs. But on the synthesis side, I think there's, there's very often kind of a crawl, walk, run approach that you have where crawl is incredibly structured. It, it may be a team of people are going out and doing interviews. And so one of the things I learned from, from an early mentor, Carolyn Way, was like, even just putting the questions that you're trying to answer in like a Google sheet as columns and the participants as rows. And just going through and like literally kind of copying and pasting their answers in. And then you have another column for sort of like a, a more synthesized perspective. Like, here's what they said. Here's what I think that meant. And like, here's what that means for us. And and you can kind of give people that structure so they can go through things, you know. And the, I think synthesis isn't very much an art and a science. And so you can structure it very tightly and then kind of move it up. But I think it's important to almost like show the work. Right. Yeah, yeah. On the flip side of it, the something that we did at Slack that I think was spearheaded by a researcher named Mike Massimi was we tried to move away from just these like massive insights repositories because the amount of time that people would spend trying to find the answer to a question that like required them to know a study was done and when it was done or like maybe what year it was done and what it was called and like which slide that I mean it's just chaos right and so what Mike had led us to was these kind of what we know about pages and it's almost like a wiki a very human language to say like what do we know about. Slacks brand, or what do we know about admins, or whatever it is, and in in almost like a Q and A format, we just answered those questions, and we would cite studies. So, you know, X percent of people believe whatever. Footnote, link to the direct slide, right? And it it was sort of a high level one pager that really anyone in the company could contribute to because we weren't the only people who were doing research. We weren't the only people learning, right? But then we cited all of our sources. So if anyone wanted to go deeper than that. That one page, probably two or three pages, honestly, they could go read all those studies. But it became this kind of canonical source of truth where everyone knew that if you wanted to know the most recent like NPS numbers or customer satisfaction, it was just there. Because we took on the responsibility of updating that every quarter and, and making sure that it was, as work was done, it was going to be visible to people. And I think that one of the struggles that a lot of teams make is they orient like what's the most convenient way to just save and like tag their own research instead of what's the best way for my organization to engage with the things that i'm learning and i think for us the more we had those conversations we realized that decks and slides and all these things were just really hard versus providing sort of clear answers and saying like look these are the things we kind of believe to be true i think the flip side of that was we were able to ask questions that people were asking us like oh well what about this thing or like how you know and we could just say mike is going to be working on it in q4 like we don't have an answer there is no sort of source of truth right now And if you're interested, go talk to him. And so it was both like what we know and upcoming roadmap, which ended up being really successful. And I think a lot more human and accessible than some of the other formats we had. The other thing that I'll say, and we made this comment earlier, is like it allowed us to protect PII because I think a lot of people just like open their repositories to the organization, having like raw data and then like synthesized reports. And then actually this kind of higher level wiki one pager source of truth provided us a lot of ways to protect the people that, you know, we were talking to and making sure that they weren't being exposed or, you know, identified in any way.
1: That's really interesting. And I I guess, you know, you're talking about, you know, providing the tools so people get to know how to do this in the right way. I just want to circle back to this point I was making earlier around the the supply and demand of that skill set in the market today, right? There's a, Huge tension there. I was having a conversation with Marty Kagan earlier this year in January, and I asked him, how do you think the the role of product managers is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years? And he said, well, I think product managers are going to do less and less delivery and more and more discovery work. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really, and that's really interesting. And the first question that kind of like rose to mind back at the time was clearly, Universities and whatever, you know, boot camps or whatever other teaching formats are not producing enough user researchers for the demand that companies, tech companies have today. So yeah. like in that context, how do you enable more people within the company who might not have the academic tools or background to actually conduct research in, in the organization?
0: Yeah, so many things there. I'm going to say, so I want to respond to Marty's comment, answer your question, then share a slide. But I'm just saying that out loud so I don't forget those things. I think Marty's comment makes a ton of sense because if you think about the evolution of just product developments, not even product management, but just like us building things, it's become easier and easier to build. And we are increasingly building for people who don't look like us or don't have our same lived experiences. And so it's even more important for us to be looking outside of ourselves. I think if you go back 20 years, however many years, right? So much of the advice was, oh, like you're your best first customer, solve the problem you have. And I think like that didn't change for a while. It just was like, I'm going to continue solving problems for people like me. We are less and less solving problems for people who are like us, right? If you work on Instagram, you have 2 billion customers. Most of them don't look like you. At Facebook, you know, we were building all these products and like very few people are sitting in California in an air conditioned building with like unending, like the world just doesn't look like that. And so it's important for us to get away from that sort of just continuous delivery mindset and ask like, who are we trying to serve and what does their life look like and how do these things fit in there? And so I think we're going to see much more of that convergence. There was a moment at Facebook where one of the product managers on my team actually left. And so I took over for a quarter and the only goal was like 0% attrition on the team. It was like, we're going to just heal and like sort of maintain things. And coming out of that, I ended up giving a talk to some of the folks on the research team who were who were newer And just like, you know, if you squint, again, like I'm not trying to offend anyone here, product managers and researchers jobs are almost inverted, right? 10% of a product manager's job for, for, if you look at time spent, 10% of it is trying to understand the customer and their problem. 90% is helping people make good decisions about it. For most researchers, 90% of their job is understanding the customer and the problem. And like that little 10% is like helping people make decisions about it. And so I think we're not that far off. And there are meaningful ways that we can kind of converge. Yeah. So the comment about Marty, the comment about programs, I think it's been interesting because you know, we're having this conversation because I'm saying things that reasonable people disagree with. And I think generally, I mean, so we're not, I guess we're not reasonable people then. <laughs> I what, I, that's like my, that's my catch all for like, there are other people in the world that I respect that don't. Yeah, of anything, course. Right. Makes sense. And, and for very good reasons. No. But the academy tends to lag industry, at least I think in in a lot of fields by about a decade. And so, even like I was incredibly fortunate to go to the Human Centered Design and Engineering program at the University of Washington, which had prior to that been a technical writing program. And so it was it actually had its roots in like the same place that a lot of UX research had its roots. But they brought in faculty from sociology, from computer science, from design, from material. Like we had just an incredibly Diverse faculty who were helping us think about like how do we shape tools and how do tools shape us, and I think it was it's very rare. There's a handful of those programs at least stateside, and so we're not even to the po- like we're at the point of like the skill teaching aspect, not quite to the like democratization aspect, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, there's probably some Maslow's hierarchy of you know whatever career performance, right? There's like if you think about the medical schools, it's like learn one, see one, what is it? Learn one, see one, do one, right? So you like, you like conceptually understand it, you like watch it, and then you like start practicing. I think if you imagine researchers are on a lot of similar trajectories, like from the academy perspective, we're at the like learn one, see one stage and like see one, do one stage. We're not at the like do one, teach one stage, which is where I think a bunch of, not a bunch, there are a handful of us who are starting to explore that. And, you know, I think, the people who are most excited to have this kind of conversation with me are people who've been in the industry for a while and run into these barriers or leadership who literally can't hire for their teams and have to ask how else they can scale their practice. And I think that's where the conversation becomes more interesting because you recognize that like everyone in your organization can benefit from the things that you know and understand and can do. And the question is like, what is the right investment across those areas? What are like the actual individual things that you want to do as a team what are the things that you want to like help other people do? And what are you just going to like make safe for people to do on their own? So if you want to pull up, hold on, actually, before you do that, let me pull up some slides because this is, this is like the conversation I love having with folks. Okay. Yeah, if you want to pull up slides real quick. So one of the things I talked about a lot when we talked about the beginning of this conversation is just like the risk involved, right? And so there's obviously multiple kinds of risk in research, but I like to think of there kind of being these three different categories. There's like, you know, super high risk stuff that you need to be research led there is this kind of medium risk stuff that is often research assisted. And then there's like the low risk stuff that's kind of research approved. But I think about this as being on a journey. So you have people who are driving, people who are navigating, and then people who are just passengers. And most organizations have, like researchers and most organizations have this as like their comfort state. They're just like, oh my God, I want like none of the other stuff. I need full coverage. The reality is that they exist in worlds that look like this, right? And like there's just stuff happening everywhere and it's chaos and it's actually really damaging. And so the question is like, how do you move towards some sort of more balanced state? So the research team is focused on the things that research is uniquely able to do. You have partnerships or guidance or coaching models with people that are a little bit more risky and there are checks and balances in place. And then you've actually like said, hey, these things are great and we can figure this out and you can kind of run on your own. So like the customer success surveys I shared earlier, like in that green zone, like the customer success team was sending surveys anyway. They were going to be doing these things. We just made sure that they were standardized, safe, aligned with our other data sets, et cetera. And they were off to the races. Something that may be more in this kind of like yellow, like research assisted is a product manager, product marketing manager, wanting to go and talk to customers where they're actually like a pretty okay interviewer. They're good at asking follow-up questions. They're good at asking open-ended questions, but we work with them on like the discussion guide or especially the analysis because it's not something that we can own end-to-end, but we can have a meaningful impact in because they're going to go out and conduct the research. We may help with recruiting, whatever. It's it's kind of like a handheld model. like. We navigate them through. We say, hey, look, you need to speed up, slow down. There's a turn coming, whatever it is, because we've been on that journey before and we can effectively flag those. And I think as people start to embrace a little bit more of like an abundance mindset and see that this isn't actually a threat to them doing their job, this is freeing them up to focus on the like more important areas that they really need to dig into. We're going to see more people move away from just the doing one and doing more of this like teaching one or making it safe for other people to do one in various ways. And this looks really different for different organizations. So the the first time I ran this workshop, we had some folks who worked in healthcare and then some folks who worked on robots. And like, you know, Facebook business, Slack, robots, healthcare, like radically different spectrums of risk, right? Like if you work in healthcare, you have all sorts of considerations like HIPAA, you have parent-child legal agreement, like very different world. And so the kinds of things that that person was able to think about making safe looks really different but they still had things, right? And it was just a matter of like, what are the right things that I may not be the person who has to be doing and I can actually mm. allow other people to participate in. And,
2: and do you think that there is a way to go to a more balanced state, even if we don't have any user researcher in the company for the moment? because we talk about company that already have researchers. But totally. can we talk about like having user research activities, even if there is not user researcher? Like we, With the case, like in many, many different companies, like can we jump on this new stage of democratization without having user research or do you recommend to just hire a researcher first?
0: So it's a great question. When I talk to especially early stage companies, I actually walk them through this and encourage them not to hire a researcher to just do research, because I think that one of the mistakes that gets made really early on is when you hire a researcher to just do research. You're basically distributing the entire like understanding your customer to one person. And then they end up playing this role of like being an Oracle and and eventually they will not be able to scale and everyone will be frustrated. And so a lot of times we'll do an audit of like who's all like what are your existing customer touch points? And how do you feel about the feedback you're gathering? Like, why do those exist? Right. What kinds of evidence are you trying to gather? What decisions are those helping you make? And, And sort of like tweaking that. And very often I'll encourage folks to hire a researcher. And like, don't have them just start doing research, have them spend time understanding how the organization makes decisions and think about where they can best play. Because some of it might be, hey, we have a regular cadence of talking to a customer. Let me just clean up the discussion guide and train some of the product managers on asking better questions. And let's see how that goes. Right. Or like, let me fix the recruit. Or wow, we have a bunch of people who really want to talk to us on Twitter maybe I could start setting up roundtables. And so I think there are lots of different ways for people to play in this space. In fact, outside of the studio, I teach a program or lead a program through Reforge called User Insights for Product Decisions. And I had a number of folks come in in exactly that spot. Like we don't have researchers, either I'm a product designer or product manager, and we're just trying to get closer to customers. And we want to figure out like, what are the right things to do? And so a lot of the frameworks and and sort of strategies that we shared was about building that practice, even if you don't have the researcher. So I'm 100% biased, but I totally believe it can be done. That's, that's really interesting. And based on your experience so far, right, especially I'm
1: thinking in, in very large organizations like Facebook and, and Slack, how does, this, how does this relationship from a user researcher to the rest of the organization work, especially in this balanced state where, you know, you have research assisted and research approved, like, how do you
0: concretely, like, put that in place? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely took sort of a walk, crawl, run approach to some things too. So we had, I mean, the the customer success surveys was a six month project of us talking to a lot of folks on their team to understand why they even send these surveys, what kinds of decisions they're making, what are the other questions they'd want to use, thinking about sort of the, the sort of final step there. And, you know, building out a library of like a hundred other survey questions and then sort of readmes and other documents about why you would want to use these and survey best practices and stuff like that. And really kind of sharing the knowledge that we have. For some of the other programs, there was a product marketing team that did like a customer conversation series. And we understood the intent of the program and they were able to manage recruiting by basically pulling in this group that they had regular access to. And so what they needed help with was like, How do we think about the time and the energy management of an interview? And what are kinds of the questions that we should be asking? And so we workshopped that with them. And I think basically like met every month as they were iterating until they got to a place that like, okay, they had two of these conversations this month and that felt okay. Let's, you know, talk about how that went. We sat in on some of them or even watched the recordings, debriefed. Again, cleaned up the discussion guide. They had another go at it. And I think it's really about thinking long-term and like instead of thinking about things as like just projects, like it's a research practice that you're trying to build at the organization. And so exactly. people are going to level up in different ways and they're going to need to level yeah. up in different ways, right? Like, And, and it's, gonna... it
1: also sounds like the way you describe it, it almost sounds like it organically turned into a form of mentoring, right? Totally.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with people's individual skills and comfort. And so I can't say that like all product marketing managers wanted to do that. Like there were a handful. And, and for us, that was helpful. It was like, great, we want to let you engage in whatever way feels meaningful to you. And however confident you are, and we're helpful, we're able to help, you know, level you up in in certain ways. And so then they were able to come to us and say, like, this person's like, well, I just want to be a really good note taker and I want to help with the synthesis. And it's like, great, we can have those conversations with you. That's fine this person wanted to be a better interviewer. And so it's like, great, we'll, ha- we'll spend time doing that kind of practice with you, you know, so that you get confident doing that. And the amazing thing is that you now have people who are not researchers advocating for research as a practice. And they're like, they're the ones who are like, yes. no, 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 I can't do this. Like, like this, you know, I need to go talk to Bezon or like Bezos, shoot, there's someone else on the team, right? Because it's like way above my level because they, they've started to have those experiences. Yeah. And I think it's, it's sort of a roundabout way for a lot, of, a lot of people don't recognize that this is almost the better way to get more support for what you're doing because other people being in these conversations, recognizing that like interviews are very difficult, right? You're, you're managing your own energy. You're managing someone else's mm-hmm. energy. You're keeping track of what they're saying, being able to do that kind of dance, right? It would, it's very hard. You do a handful of those and you're just like, wow, I just watched, you know, Axel do this and he is just a professional. Now, when I have these incredibly high stakes interviews or these different groups, like I want to just bring Axel in and watch him and learn. And like, you know, until you get to a point where you can do this. I mean, Facebook, we used to do this a bunch with, there was a customer immersion program and we would go and spend, we'd basically take a team and do kind of roundtables with customers. And the first couple we did, it was like me interviewing someone in front of the team and it just like, it felt terrible. And so it was like, You know, I talked to the upcoming participant. I was like, can we switch this up a little bit? Like, I would really love to let other people in the room ask you questions. They know roughly what we're going to talk about. Some of their questions may not be super well phrased. So I might kind of rephrase them for you if that's it. And and like, she was super cool with it. And so I had a room of different people. Some people worked on like iOS some people worked on Android. Some people worked on web. Some people worked on like everyone had kind of different interests. And so we developed a way of like, okay, we're all going to sit around a table. It's like clearly not like me doing an interview, watching someone use something. It's just like an open conversation. And I played air traffic controller and occasionally like rerouted some of the questions. But it was helpful as we debriefed because everyone had like an individual thing that they had learned because they would asked something. But then they also were like, hey, I don't, I don't even know how to ask about this thing. Can we make sure that it gets into the discussion guide? And I think when we were working on the discussion guide for the, the conversations, they were like, oh, no, I'll be able to ask me like, you kind of trust them. You're like, sure, you're a professional. Like, you're going to ask the right question about whatever it is. And then they do it and they're just like, oh, wow, this is hard. Like, I got nervous or like, I, you know, whatever. And it's it's almost like an empathy building exercise within the team. And I think having some of those experiences you know, in, in safe and responsible ways ends up both like building credibility for the work that you're doing, but also like leveling up the people around you and helping them figure out like where they want to participate. Some of them yeah. are like, I never want to ask a question again, but like, I'm going to message it to you or like, I'm going to write it out, whatever.
1: Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem, or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, ContentSquare and Miracle, all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. And do, do, you, do you think
2: that this shift in the, this user research job like going more to like a mentor role is accepted by C-levels and maybe like high high level people in the company. Like, is that okay? Because I just knew that it's still a new job. So yeah, now it's seen that people want user researchers to do user research. And do you feel that this shift is coming in the mindset or?
0: I think we're starting to see more of it. So actually, I think it was this week, Mural posted a job that was a UX research coach. Oh, and it was like the the first actual like school version of that job I've ever seen outside of people who like bring in, you know, me. But I, I think that if you, if you zoom out, right, like most CEOs are trying to like do two things, hire the best people and like help the business, you know, grow and succeed. And so I think there's lots of different ways that that works. And I think if you, if you gave someone the opportunity to either like, hire a researcher for all the different kinds of work they needed to do or like hire smart researchers and then let them empower other people to have better conversations and engage with customers. It's like like this one is really expensive. And now I'm competing with literally every other company in the world for this talent of which I probably can't hire all of these people. And that means we're going to be waiting. And This one, I'm going to hire great people and you know probably a few less of them, but then that's going to have this cascading impact down the organization. And so I'm optimistic about it. I think it also frees researchers up again to do the more strategic work. Like I see a lot of people in larger organizations that effectively are asked to be product police where like at the end of a development cycle, it's like, go put this in front of people and see if they can use it. And it's like, pretty sure that's not the best use of that PhD in anthropology that you have. Like, can we not have you spending your time doing it? In some cases, it's like, But I think even if you look at other trends in the industry, right, the increase in focus in accessibility and the increase in investment in design systems, instead of doing as much usability or any of this research on the individual experiences, you can almost split like 80-20, like invest research in the design system, which has consistent standardized components that are used literally everywhere. And then for things where you are particularly concerned or confused about the, you know, the configuration of them or like the new whatever, then you can do some testing, right? But again, this is about thinking about like, how do you best use your time and skills? If my choice is to usability test every single interface or spend more than half the time usability testing my design system in a bunch of different experiences and then being like, oh, this is a really weird case of this and like, I'll test that. I'm picking the latter like every time, right? It's just, again making sure that all of the systems that we're going to use are good and scalable and work is so much more effective than me looking at every single interface all over, right? And I think also you want to trust the people that you work with that like they are smart and good at their job in the same way that you want them to trust you. So if I trust that the designers and engineers are using a design system that has been vetted and they're using it appropriately like I shouldn't have to usability test every interface because if it's accessible and like, we're, like we have these good practices built in as a system, I need to worry a little bit less, right? There's still good reasons to do that. But again, I, I think like research is really expensive on all counts. Like it's not free for sure, right? It takes your time, it takes the company time, it takes participant mm-hmm. time. And like I'm not of the belief that having customers usability test every single interface we have is like the best use of their time. I would much rather deeply understand who they are and their lived experiences and those perspectives. And then, you know, do less of the usability testing and sort of like connect the dots on our own. Again, reasonable people disagree.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and I guess that this this brings me to like one of the topics we we hear a lot about as well, talking to the product community here in Europe. If you talk to like heads of products or, you know, chief products officers in, in companies and you tell them about you know, trying to understand what's their product culture, how much time do they invest in discovery, things like this. You will hear from these people that you, you won't hear any objection or, or resistance about, you know, being user-centered, thinking discovery first and things like that. I'm like yep. everybody will agree with you. And then you will ask the question of what was the last time you spoke to a customer or end user? And they will say, they will go, hmm. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and, and like the mere fact that they have to think about it you yep. know, reflects on the state of the organization when it comes to product discovery. Why do you think that's the case? And and I'm really asking this question because I still don't get why everybody agrees that this is the right way to do things, yet so few of them are focused on discovery. Most of them are focused on delivery, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's hard. And I think that if you... Yeah, I I think the the simple answer is that it's hard. The the other simple answer is that it's very easy to make a mistake, and people who make one or two of these mistakes feel like it was a very expensive mistake, and then don't find a way to work with someone to figure out how to correct those things. One of the first conversations that I have with folks, the first thing we talk about in Reforge is the difference between like decision last and decision first research. So most people I I talk to do what I call decision last research. They're like. I want to go watch people use the product. And so they go and watch people use the product. They get some sort of evidence and then they use that to try to make a decision. And they realize they got like some small sliver of what they really needed. And in this case, you, know, you see a lot of people do this and they're like, oh, we went to talk to customers and like, it wasn't very helpful. It's like, of course it wasn't. Like, which customers? Like, what did you talk about? What, you know, if you do decision first research, you're asking like, what is it that we're trying to decide? Is it, do we ship or not ship? Is it like, how can we better serve these people? And that forces you to ask like, who are these people and like, how might we find them and what are the things that they need to have done or like, what's the surface area with our product that they need to have exposure to such that we can have a meaningful conversation and gather the right evidence, right? Is it, oh, I want to watch people use the product. Great. Is it the actual product? Is it in their environment? Is it in you know, an environment that you can create, right? Is it an abstraction of the product? there's all these things that get embedded into going from what's the decision I'm trying to make to like what evidence I need to make that decision. And if you flip it, you're just wasting your time and wasting customer time and and not doing the work very well. And so I think even just like pushing people on that helps them realize that they're trying to do like 17 different things in a usability study and they're going to fail at all of them, right? Because you're just like, oh, we'll we'll just, we'll try to talk to like this customer and this customer. It's just like, This person is an admin who has literally seen this interface one time when they like set up the security settings. Why are we asking for their feedback on all this other stuff? Like it it may, it's not part of their job. It's not something that they would experience. Go have a meaningful conversation about their mental model about security and like the degree to which you need to manage the organ, whatever that is. But you have the, you know, effectively people like walking out on the street and being like, hey, I'm going to like ask you about spending millions of dollars on Facebook ads. And just like, this person is, you know, has no context for that, right? Why are they the ones giving us this product feedback? And I, I think that's like the work of being intentional about the research is, is hard and expensive. And if you haven't had some of these conversations, it's easy to get wrong. And I think that generally is, is like the community's pushback about this. It's like, you know, some research is bad research and like that's more damaging to us. And it's like, I think in some cases that's very true, but I also think people trying and failing helps them understand why our is valuable, and like why it's worth talking to us about how to do these things better. Right, e- even just having the recruiting conversation, like making someone walk you like this is my decision, which means, yeah. And some of the other things is like, who's going to sign off on this, right? And they're like, oh, well, I need you know the finance team's approval. And I'm like, okay, so the finance team probably cares about revenue, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, what revenue evidence are you gathering? They're just like, oh yeah, and it's like well, perfect, right? Like just going through this process of articulating all those things helps them move towards a better study design. It also helps you acknowledge where you already have data that you can leverage. And so you don't need to go and gather all of this stuff net new. It's just like, oh, we have, you know, some of this data and some of this data. We just want to hear like people's perspectives on. Great, go talk to them, to ask their perspective. Do you need to show them something? Yes, cool. Have you like worked with the team to show them the thing? Like, and I think that part just gets missed because we so often talk about methods as if they're like these fixed recipes of like, oh, I'm going to go do a usability study. Like everyone's definition of usability study is you know, very different. <laughs> and the some reality. people get quite, quite dogmatic about it as well. <laughs> right. It's like the reality is like a usability study is, you know, has a specific meaning that has been just like diluted through everyone's talking about it, right? A survey and you're like, what I help people try to work through is what are the actual sort of different trade-offs or, dis- or parts of the decision that they're making, right? We want to talk to people. I want to show them a stimulus. It's going to be a high fidelity stimulus. I don't need them to interact with it because I'm just looking for their feedback and their reflection. Like I want to talk to people who have previously used it. And as soon as you start articulating all those things, you're not you're not like, oh, this is like design research or interview. It's just like, this is the study that I am designing because this is going to help me gather the evidence I need. And I think, honestly, if we never talked about methods again, I would be so happy because I think they're <laughs> a perfect shortcut to a lot of these things where you're just like, oh, a usability study is like a six-person bullet. And you're just like... And, and, be, and I guess people obsess about these as well,
1: right? Because yeah. Because it's just like, rather than t- talking about... And, and, and we have this conversation a, a lot in, in the company. We, sometimes we'll go in a company and we'll talk about jobs to be done. And we've done this before. If we start by introducing jobs to be done theory, like nobody gets what we're trying to tell them, but if we talk about interviewing people and never talk about jobs to be done at all, and like in the last slide of the training, will say. By the way, this has a name. It's called jobs to be done. Everybody gets it.
0: Yeah, and it, yeah. When I was when I was building the program with reforge, I think they were at the beginning. They were like, "Why do you not want to teach method?" And I'm like, "No, no, no I don't. I don't want to not teach method. I don't want to teach them as method. I like. I never want us to say this is a usability study or like you know because." What I want people to do is step back and say, what are the different things I'm trying to decide? Like, how do I want to engage with people? Who do I want to engage with? Like, thinking about is there a stimulus or not? Is this in context or not? Is this a one-time experience or do we need to do this multiple times because they need to live with the product to like give me the right kind of feedback, right? And even just asking that question of like stimulus and timing and environment, people are like, oh yeah, like I, I probably do need to see this in their workspace because they have access to different things or they have this like config, right? especially with advertisers. It was like they had 16 different screens running. Like I needed to be there to be like, oh, this is like a NASA supercomputer kind of experience. Right? And like that's a very <laughs> different model than me sitting with like Facebook Ads Manager on a laptop being like, oh yeah, I can just click through things. Like all of those things are important. And if I just tell you interview, you're like, yeah, I know what to do. I'm just like, I need to I need to go deeper.
1: <laughs> before, um, before I hand before I hand over to Roxanne, sorry. I'm just gonna take one question from from the audience from Dan, who's saying, Do you have any advice on ways of taking notes while interviewing, whether it's customer journey or anything else?
0: Yes. Couple different types of advice depending on the situation. I think if you are we'll start with like in person without a recording and and scale up. You know, in person without a recording, I think is really hard. So Write really quickly, or more often, like bring someone else and have them be able to write or type. I think as soon as you're able to have a recording, especially if it's in person and you can't kind of take notes that are time stamped in the same way. I developed a shorthand, so I would have like a couple different codes I used. So I used to write like "juicy" for like a juicy quote. It was like you know, juicy at like 9:47, and so I would go back and be like, okay, 9:47, like they said something, and it probably had some sort of tag or like bug or concern or whatever, and it was it was meant to be sort of annotations for me to go back through the the recording and and figure those things out. Now in a digital world and should disclose, I'm I'm an investor. But if you're using Zoom, I'm a big fan of grain because Grain allows you to basically take notes that are time stamped and there are emojis that you can use to sort of flag things. So I have an emoji for like a bug or like, you know, a great quote or someone's really happy. And you can create highlights that way. I think there's other other versions of that for other types of video calling, but I think having a plan is probably the most important thing, and having a backup plan is the other important thing because there's time the <laughs> recorder dies, or yeah. you know Zoom stops working or whatever it is. Yeah. We, we can
1: we can feel the 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 experience here, sure.
0: yeah. Yep. <laughs> but I think and I think even when I was really starting out and and was doing this, you know, mostly on paper in person. I literally just like had my discussion guide and I was annotating notes against those questions. And it was helpful for me to just like know that like both A, this is kind of the rhythm of what we're going to talk about. And then also like here are these people's answers. And I would just write the time and, and whatnot if I was able to. Brilliant. Roxanne, over to you.
2: Yep. Oh, I just told my question so that I didn't forget it. Yeah, yeah. I just turned back on the point that you mentioned before. I would like to know if you have any advice if we go from a company perspective which works like since every time on the more maybe user testing to take maybe decisions, like what would be the first step to go to a new way of working on user research activities and so something yeah. more like about discovery patterns and things? Like what, what would be the first step or things to do?
0: Yeah, I think most companies have a product roadmap. And so then what I encourage them to do is actually make a corresponding decision roadmap of like, what are the different decisions that you are trying to make in service of launching these products? And which of those decisions would you like to increase your confidence in? And then we think about like what it would look like to increase confidence. like What evidence would you need to gather? Is that feasible? Is that accessible? Is that like financially viable? And I've talked to some people who are like, oh, I want to send a survey to like you know, every VP of engineering at an enterprise company. I'm like, they're not going to take your survey. Like, Let's figure out what is it that you're trying to learn and, and sort of recalibrate. But I think a lot of the problem of getting started is people are like, oh, I should go talk to customers. And it's like, in service of what? Like, what are you, after you talk to them, if you learned exactly what you wanted, what are you going to do? And it's like, oh, well, I, it's like, okay, let's start there. Like, I'm trying to decide whether or not to launch this product or whether or not we, this feature is a problem. It's like, okay, well, how would you know it's a problem? And they're like, oh, well, if people can't use it. It's like, okay, well, you probably have log data on that. Like, are people not using it? And they're like, oh no, they're using it. I'm like, okay, so is the, yeah, and, you know, and like just literally working through those things. And so I think having the corresponding decision roadmap for the product roadmap and then literally like sometimes we'll just like highlight or circle or you know do this in Miro or Big Jam or whatever. Like, here are the things that we're trying to do. Here are the areas that I am like not very confident. And like, here are some of the dependencies, right? We need to prioritize this one because then B, C, and D build off of A, right? So like, let's spend some time here. And then you're able to kind of build out what the research might look like. And I think very honestly, then you have this conversation like, well, doing this really well is going to take us six months can you wait six months to make this decision or, or whatever? And I think that becomes more of the like negotiation side of, okay, well, could we do a lighter version in three months or one month and like then kind of build out for the other stuff to help you start down that path or at least know, you know, maybe I don't know if I should go left or right, but like, oh, I can't go right. Okay, good. Go, prepare to go left. Great, That's you. super insightful. I'm just
1: looking at the time. I think I had a couple of questions for you. This is the, this is the crystal ball section of, of the show. So you just mentioned you work with some of the greatest tech companies in the world, to be fair. Like I think you mentioned Figma. I mean, we spend a lot of time in Figma it's, as product people. And we, I guess we look to these companies also because they have a different level of practice when it comes to product and user research yeah. in general, yeah. right? So two questions for you what are some of the practices you're seeing emerging from these leading companies, if I, if I might say? Yeah. And the second one is, how do you see this line of work, this domain changing over the next three to
0: five years? Mm-hmm. So, so, sorry for, so, sorry no, for my no, question. No, no, no,
2: no.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I will say that I think Figma does have an incredibly high caliber of practice. I think Kristen Torrey, who runs the research team there, is fantastic. She came over from Dropbox. And then the team, Krista, Vanessa, Ben, like all really incredible researchers. And I think they, you know, again, confirmation bias, like we're pretty aligned in the way that we think about the practice because the reality is like for a long time, Figma didn't have a research team and they had a really engaged customer base and lots of fans. And so they have lots of different parts of the organization where they engage with customers. And Kristen didn't come in and like try to close that down. She's like, okay, I'm here, going to build a research team now, like stop talking to customers. It's asinine. She was like, what's happening? And how do we start making those things better? And where do I start to staff the team so that we can like add leverage to these different areas, right? What are the highest, you know, impact decisions? What are the highest risk decisions that we need to work on? And so I think getting to work with her and the team was was great because it was, you know, truly an embodiment of a lot of these things that, that we've been talking about and that I believe of like, you probably are going to have other people in your organization talking to customers. Like it's happening all around you. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Just figure out how to make it better and more meaningful. Stop the stuff that's bad, help them do it better. And so I think for them, it was great. Like getting to work with them was great because they had a lot of these things in place. And I got to go in and kind of just like focus on a couple areas that there wasn't someone on the team working on and think about how do we like scale up these things or sort of tweak in in various ways. And so I I think like, you know, the biased answer is, organizations are being a bit more pragmatic about this and recognizing that like, you know, to your point about schools and whatnot, like you just can't hire enough people to do some of this work. And also some of this work shouldn't be like you should just give it away and make it safe for other people to do. How do I see this changing over the next three to five years? I, unsurprisingly, I deeply believe that researchers are much more impactful in organizations in earlier stages than we're typically hired. And I think that One of the problems is we don't have a really good or well-understood model for what it looks like to do this kind of coaching work or to have a fractional engagement in the same way that, you know, people can be sort of advisor CMO or, you know, part-time CFO or like, there's just no fractional researcher. I think we have sort of freelancers, right? And you can, you can bring in a researcher to do a study. Yeah. But I think that project-based work is very different than like building a practice and so I, again, bias, disclosure, like I do think, and honestly, one of the reasons that I started the studio was to prove this out or at least try. Like, I think that researchers and and people who are in our practice will be really helpful to early stage companies. I don't think we know what that looks like. I don't think we have a good compensation model. I don't think we have a lot of examples. And so this Was just an experiment for me to say, like, can I go work early in these different ways and be impactful and valuable and like shift what the practice looks like? The answer so far for me has been like a resounding yes. And what's been really interesting is I'm not super looking forward to like hiring more people into the studio or trying to grow that way. I care a lot about this as an outcome, but I don't need to own it. And so I've just started rolling more people into regular conversations. I spun up a back channel with two people I really respect that are also trying to do this work. And just like, how do we help think about the things that we're learning as we start to coach and partner with these organizations? Because especially at the early stages, like people do want to talk to customers. They want to like better understand the world and get outside of their own perspective. And if our option is very binary, like either hire a researcher full-time or don't, like we're going to miss out on I think, honestly, like the most important places that we can play. And I think having the conversation early with those founders of like, don't go to a customer and say, would you buy this, right? Or at a later stage, once they have a product and they, they're getting some traction, like how do you operationalize learning and good decision-making in your organization? All the way up to like, okay, when is it the right time to hire people? And so I think we will see more kind of researchers as coaches and hopefully more researchers doing the like kind of strategic work that they're really excited about. Because we're starting to recognize the humanity and the curiosity and all the people that we work with. And we're less scared of empowering them to have those conversations or those experiences. I think it would be a catastrophic failure for us if we retracted and we were like, no, researchers need to own all of the research because the reality is the world moves fast and people are going to work around us. And we have this unique moment where there are so many interesting tools and skills and other things out there that we can help organizations figure out what's the right configuration of like learning from and engaging with their customers. And I would love for us to seize that moment and like help them all across the board, right? Whether you're a large scale company or you're a small organization, like there's just so much that we can do. I was having a dinner with a friend in New York last week and was talking to one of her advisors and she was kind of like, you know, who do you work with in an organization? Like, honestly, anyone, right? Like there are teams that are in people ops or human resources that are trying to figure out how do we better like make sure that our benefits are aligned to the values of our teams, right? And it's like, Mm -hmm. I can have the same research conversations, like product, customer, same thing. And so I I desperately hope, and I, I think we're starting to see researchers have a little bit more imagination in the ways that we can leverage our skills and have an impact. It's not just about like building good products, right? It's about helping organizations make decisions wherever those things happen. And that could be internal, it could be external, it could be whatever, but it's like sort of necessary for us to start dreaming bigger and not being so protective about things because you have to like let go of something to like take hold of something else. And I think we've just been so scared to like let go for so long that we're just kind of like, we don't know what is out there in the world. And I think a a big reason that I'm writing so much and doing these conversations like being so public about it is because I I think this is a better world for us. I think it's, for me, it's been much more rewarding. I'm having much more interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. And I just think the practice will grow with more of this kind of work. And it's
1: such Uh, a big vector of empowerment and enablement in teams, right? And I guess one of the things that sometimes I look at and I think, you know, that's completely suboptimal. It's, it's, and going back to this idea of, you know, teaching or, or democratizing this knowledge in, in the company is that you're enabling people to and empowering them to become closer to the people you're serving and there's something very virtuous about it that I think is most of the time underplayed, if not completely unrecognized, right? And, and that's a big part of this empowerment and enable, uh, enablement part of it is just like, I, I never hear about it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of folks I talk to, especially who work in community based organizations or nonprofits, where like I couldn't even go and, as like a white presenting cis male, like have a conversation with their, the people they are trying to serve because, like, they won't talk to me. And I'm so far removed from that experience. The only way I could help this organization is helping people in that organization have those conversations. Right. And so it's, it's when I zoom out and I think about people who work in, in these different populations and trying to serve different, you know, groups of people, I shouldn't be the one having all these conversations. Like, I, I just can't. It's inaccessible to me in so many ways. And so, to your point, like, the more we're trying to help, other people in the world, we as researchers, the more we have to recognize where our limits are and invite and empower other people to take part in this. Right? Like, I can't and won't, and I'm not able to have all these conversations. So the only thing I can do is help other people do that really well. Brilliant. Well, I guess we're coming to a close. Before we let you go, I
1: wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was super interesting. Um, Thanks for all of these insights. I will invite everyone to go and have a look at your blog. Good luck with everything and we'll speak to you very soon. Yeah, thank you guys so much. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot
0: podcast. Until next time.